I, I want to kind of to preface my, my sermon this morning by telling you, I, I want to kind of make it more of a, an impressionistic type painting. Impressionist paintings such as Matisse and Monet and these sorts of things where you see what they're talking about, but there's this, this vivid quality, this sort of emotive quality to it. And I want to, to express that to you today. These, these Impressionist paintings are, are paintings of flow and movement and, and suddenness. And I, I want to kind of convey that to you in this message today. Or I could say so many other things that what I will say, but I, I want you to hear the heart of the message. The primary scriptures today are in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. These books, they overlap. The, the same author, Luke, so far as we know, wrote both Luke and Acts. The, the book of, of Luke focuses on the life of Jesus. The book of Acts focuses primarily on the early church and the emphasis is on the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to start today in the book of Acts chapter 1. So if you please turn with me there. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. It says, In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, as we sang about today, appearing to them during uh, 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, a theme of this message. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but I will fill you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, so when they came together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? This is a, a major theme. They were confused here. And he replied, It is not for you to know the times or the period that the Father has set by his own authority. But he, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, the outcasts, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up suddenly, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10, while he was going, and they were gazing up toward the heavens, suddenly, again, a theme of, of Luke, both in Luke and Acts, suddenly, two men in white robes stood before them, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus, some versions say this, same Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. I want to speak to you this morning a message entitled, This Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning... <clears throat> We, we thank you for the privilege of sitting here this morning, uh, the privilege of, of giving a message, the privilege of, of listening to a message, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us, the grace upon grace of this Jesus. And we ask that this Jesus would be glorified today and that this Jesus, by his Spirit, would open our ears to hear what the Spirit of this living Jesus has to say. We pray these things in that name of Jesus Christ. Everyone said amen. Amen. The message entitled, This Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's, as the book says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to know who this Jesus is, look to see who Jesus was in the book of, of, of Luke, the book of Acts, or the, the early Acts, the, the Gospels and other books. If you want to know who Jesus will be, look to see what he's doing today. And look to see what he's done in the past. You see, this Jesus, this word, this, that the, that, that the angels referred to here, or they used, is what linguists call a demonstrative. It demonstrates something. It's like the word that, this and that. Often we use the word this and we point. Which, which speaker are you referring to? Well, that one, or this speaker. It's, it's a word we use when we teach children things. So, so uh, this is red. Red, 
this piano. We point and we demonstrate. And that's what this word, this, is doing here. We use it for anything from teaching children to teaching dogs, or not teaching dogs, but showing them what we want them to do. Okay, the food is right here, this, this. And often, what will the dog do? The dog will not look at the food or what you're pointing at. The dog will look at the end of your finger, right? There's a message here that I, I could take off and preach. So don't look at the finger, look at what he's pointing to. But what is this Jesus like? What is his purpose and what does he want from us? You see, we look around and both within the church and without, and you'll find numerous, often inconsistent pictures of Jesus. There's the European-looking Jesus with flowing blonde locks and blue eyes. There's the Mexican Jesus, the black Jesus, the Asian Jesus, the American Jesus, and so on. There's the converse and skinny jeans-wearing hipster Jesus. New York, New York City in 2008, there, was a, there were signs in the subways that said Jesus was a hipster. Well, thanks for letting me know that. Uh, there's the cowboy Jesus. There's the right-leaning Republican strict father Jesus who thinks spiritual battles are won by electing tough-talking politicians. Ouch. There's the left-leaning democratic nurturing mother Jesus who thinks we should only fight for so-called social justice causes. This is where the progressive movement in the early 20th century went off the rails and that, yes, they were meeting some of the needs of people, but they were forgetting about this Jesus. There's the Jesus that's, according to many, who's down with any lifestyle, no matter how unbiblical. And there's the Jesus who allegedly hates gays. There's the sweet Jesus who would never condemn anyone to eternal punishment. And then there's the formidably austere, legalistic Jesus who's itching to send everyone to hell. You see, these are ways people have conceived of Jesus, but those who've offered such conceptions have failed to perceive the real Jesus. You see, these conceptions, people see what they want to see. See, I can conceive of any number of logically possible entities. I can conceive of pink elephants, and I'm not talking about elephants that are painted pink. I'm talking about elephants that were born that way. Uh, I'm talking uh, about I can conceive of unicorns. Uh, I know my, my nine-year-old, eight, eight, nearly nine-year-old daughter would love if there were unicorns, but sweetheart, there aren't unicorns. Um, I can conceive of a piece of cake the size of the sun. Now, I asked this in the first service, and I got a big response from Pastor Dave. How many of you are cake people? Anybody here? You are my people. I love cake. I love cake and ice cream. If you buy me a whole cake, I will eat the whole cake. I will eat it with ice cream. And I will eat it, and I will eat it. I love cake. Amen. I got an amen there. All right? But I can conceive of these logically possible entities, but it's not as if I conceive of them and then, voila, there they are. And now I can perceive them because they exist. You see, we often create Jesus in our own image to fit our needs and our agendas. Even some of us in this room do that. I know I've done it. A palatable idol we worship that's close enough to the real Jesus that we cannot perceive the difference. But there's only one Jesus. There's the Jesus. Right? That's a definite description there, Jesus. There's one and only one, and it's the one we're referring to today. There's this Jesus to whom the angels pointed at during his ascension. You see, these pictures just described about Jesus earlier cannot all be right. In fact, I would argue that none of them is correct. The ones we talked about earlier. But if you say you identify with Christ and you proclaim to be his follower, then you're sending signals one way or another about the nature of this Jesus in whom you profess to believe. You see, it's not about what we wear or the music that we listen to, or that we like. It's not about which service we go to. It's about our behavior, about our words. And in the, at the end of the day, it's about whether it's this living Christ in us that is creating this change. You see, what, what conception of Jesus do people get when they observe your behavior, when they listen to your words? That's a question I have to sometimes ask in my own home. What, what picture is my daughter getting my old, my old uh, eight-year-old daughter getting, my, my young two-year-old daughter getting. What picture is my wife getting? 
What picture? You know, much less the picture out there where I'm all dignified. Definitely in church, right? I've got my good clothes on today. I'm not wearing jeans today. It would have been fine. Uh, but, but, you know, what, what picture do we present? Of course, we, we present ourselves in very different ways. But I'm afraid that many Christians send mixed signals that confuse people on the outside. You see, it's a sad day when lost souls, and this has happened, point out our sometimes hypocrisy. And then they reject the real Jesus because of the fake Jesus or the fake image of Jesus, that image of Jesus that we project. You know, some people may not say this, but they may think if that's the Jesus, if that's who Jesus is, if that's what he's like, then I reject him. Because if this is Jesus, he's inconsistent, he's hypocritical. But by rejecting the real Jesus, such people will, will suffer eternally. It doesn't matter that if, if no one ever told them about the real Jesus and acted this way, they still deserve that, and so do you and I. You see, they'll completely miss the purpose for which they were created, and that's to glorify this Jesus. And in some instances, my friends, listen to me this morning. I think this all could have been avoided if we would have made manifest the real Jesus in our lives. I don't, I don't want any person to say that you, you, one day in eternity to say you told me all the right stuff, but you didn't behave that way. You didn't manifest the real person. And it's that one that I wanted. It's that one I was looking for the whole time. And there will be people that will reject the real Jesus no matter how you act around them. But I promise you, my friends, there will be many people that will reject this Jesus because of what we do and what we say and the way we behave. You see, we often defend politicians and public figures that say and do the most sordid and vile things, and all because he or she is on our side politically. Well, at least he's not she, or at least she is not he. In, in Oki speak, well, at least he ain't her, or at least she ain't him, or at least he's not that guy, right? But that's like saying, well, at least I only punched him in the gut and not in the face. I mean, which option do you want here, right? But the idea is that we should stand for truth and stand for justice. No matter if, if, if our leaders, if you, uh, the leader of your party or not is saying this and that and saying all kinds of things to say, yes, I'm on your side and on your party or with your party, but I will not stand behind that. I will not stand behind those words. You see, we must project the real Jesus. It's, it's no wonder why many Americans highlight and many others around the world highlight some of our hypocrisy. It's happened to me, and if you're, if you're truly honest with yourself, my friends, it's happened to you as well. You see, sometimes, friends, we blow it. We do it in front of people that don't know this Jesus. But I promise you that if you are contrite and you aren't arrogant and you apologize and, and you try to set things right in the right spirit, that there will be people that will see this real Jesus in your apologies. They'll see this real Jesus and you're making it right with them. And they'll say, if that's the Jesus that they serve, the one that can forgive that and that hypocrisy, I want that Jesus. You see, who was the real Jesus? At the end of, the, of John's gospel, John, writing about the works of Jesus, says this in 21, verse 25. He says, but there are also many other things that Jesus did, all the things in addition to what John spoke about. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think that supposition is correct. And, and this makes me think about a a quote from a writer named T.S. Eliot. Has anybody ever heard of T.S. Eliot? Maybe a few of you have. Yeah, a writer from early last century who, was, who himself was uh, bemoaning and speaking against the consumerism of the early 20th century. Imagine what he would think about in 2018, where to be successful is to have. If you have things, God, the Lord's bless you. That's great. But success is not in the material world. Well, this T.S. Eliot speaks about ex exploration, and he says this, he says, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Now I want us to think about that in this context with Jesus. Let me reword this and place Jesus in there. We shall not cease from exploring the things of Jesus. And at the end of exploring these things, 
will be to arrive where we started and know Jesus, this Jesus, for the first time. My friends, you may have been in the church for years. I was in church the, the second week of my life. I've been in church my whole life. There have been times where I've fallen away, but I've been in church my whole life. I've studied the Word, and I know many of you have studied the Word, and, and, and I'm a really conceptual thinker. I like to see the big picture, like no kidding, um, some of you who know me. But I like to see the big picture, and I like to connect the puzzles and the, the concepts together, and I feel like I have some understanding, but I've explored, explored for years, and I've learned this from people that I, I've known and listened to that have been in the ministry for, for many years. Many of them are, are gone now. And they would tell you that you could explore for years and years, be full of the power of the Holy Spirit, and see mighty works of God in your ministry, and go back to square one, and know this Jesus for the first time. I'm not talking about falling away. I'm talking about a genuine knowledge of this Jesus. The more and more you explore, the more and more you'll see that there's stuff you don't know, and that I don't know. You see, Jesus has, as the word uh, refers to, or, or in many places in the Bible, Jesus fulfills certain roles. And uh, one of our sister Pentecostal denominations, the Foursquare Church's name, reflects the four scriptural roles of Christ. And I could talk about each of these, but I just want to sort of show you what they are. First of all, Jesus is Savior. He died for your sins. He died for mine. He's the only one that could, and there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. He's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. If you want the baptism with and in the Holy Spirit, you seek this Jesus. You don't seek that. You seek Jesus. He's the healer. He's the one who took the lashes on his back for our healing. And he's the soon and soon coming king. We had better be ready for that. You see, we understand Jesus through these things. And, and all four of these roles are his historical or scriptural roles. But... I want to kind of step back a little bit and kind of paint you a picture here, a historical picture in some sense. You see, we better understand Jesus when we grasp his role in history, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible is saturated throughout with references to Christ. The earliest references to the Godhead make, in a sense, reference to Christ, as early as Genesis 1:26, which says, then God said, let us Make humankind in our image. He didn't, he didn't say my image. He said our image, according to our likeness. Pastor spoke on that not too long ago. But this our refers to the Godhead. It refers to the Trinity, though obviously it doesn't mention it by name. Scripture speaks specifically about Christ, though not by name, as early as Genesis 3.15. We're speaking to the serpent. God says, quote, I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, this is Jesus, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You see, many biblical scholars rightfully interpret this passage as referring to the incarnate Christ or the incarnate word as prophesied by God himself. Uh, Satan would bruise the heel of Christ in that it would bring suffering and death to Jesus' body but that Jesus in return would deliver a death blow to Satan and his kingdom. You see, it go, we can go all the way back to Genesis 1.1, and it says there, what? I think we learned this in, we learned this in Sunday school. There's another throwback. We, we learned what? That in the beginning, God, I could say God created the heaven and the earth, but I could just stop there and say, in the beginning, God. God, God was before all. God is all. God is, God is uh, being itself. And our dependence and, uh, and our lives refer back to him. We would not be here if it were not him. In the beginning, God. But if we look in the word, it, the gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was what? The word. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the word. You see, the word here is capitalized. And it's personified, and it's the logos in Greek, and it's, it was a common theme in the Greco-Roman world, stretching all the way back to 400 BC or BCE to the ancient Greeks such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I mean, I, I got my PhD in philosophy, and one of the things I ask my students is like, you may not know anything about philosophy, but how many of you, how many of you have heard of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle? I'm like, yep, I have. 
Well, they were concerned about the, the word or this logos. This logos is wisdom and understanding. They wanted to know what it was to live a good life, a virtuous life, right? What it meant to have purpose in life. And if you notice here that the word is, is identified with wisdom and understanding. We can go back even earlier than the ancient Greeks to, uh, to Proverbs, where wisdom is capitalized and it's personified. This is this Jesus, this incarnate word. Well, let's read John 1 more fully. Turn to John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and life was the light of all people. The light shines in darkness, and darkness did not overcome it. Continuing in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. We could stop there. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. How many of you received grace upon grace this morning? Yeah, I have. I, I, sometimes I, I come to this church and I think, wow, I kind of hold my head down and think, wow, am I the only failure here? Am I the only one that's failed? Am I the only one that's facing this issue? Oh, yeah, there's an issue in your mind, somebody else is facing that issue as well. Very, very likely. Am I the only one that's failed? Well, I'm very thankful to serve a Jesus has extended grace upon grace. In verse 17, it says, The law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through, and this is the first mention of Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, and it is the God, the only Son, it is God, the only Son, Jesus, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Now, I want to reread that passage, and this time I want to replace the word and he and him, the pronouns, with Jesus. And I want us to listen to what this says and how much Jesus there is. Verse 1, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Jesus. And Jesus not only, uh, and without Jesus, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And Jesus became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen Jesus' glory, the glory of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. From Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. And grace came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, Jesus, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him, the Father, known. There's a lot of Jesus in that passage. I mean, just think about it. It's Jesus this, Jesus that. Jesus was from the, from, from the very beginning, was before time even existed. And Jesus was during the period of these scriptures that we're reading, and Jesus is today, and he evermore shall be. You see, this testimony about this word is found throughout the word of God. You see, it's found in the Old Testament. Throughout scripture, Jesus attempts to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament for his disciples, explaining these things both literally and in parables about the necessity of suffering, death, and resurrection, and the kingdom of God. Just before his ascension, Jesus spent about 40 days with his disciples and other followers, as in Acts 1 and Acts 24. Acts 1 says he spoke or was speaking about the kingdom of God and telling them about the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, Luke 24 overlaps with this message as we read in Acts 1. It chronicles a series of stories about Jesus' final 40 days on earth, where Jesus interacts with his disciples and other followers. And I think the, the 40 here is significant. And I don't, I don't know the exact significance of it. I think maybe none of us will ever know, or maybe we won't know for some time. But 40 is significant. If you go back to the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you see that the, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. 
There's a whole message about that there. But they, they, they wandered for 40 years in the desert. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you like desert? Does anybody like desert in here? No? Okay. Thank you. Wow. I mean, my hand is raised because that's me. I love, I love the desert. I love uh, New Mexico. I love the high desert in Colorado. I love the uh, Chris Battenberg and I went to Moab, Utah this past summer. I loved Moab, Utah. And I would love to be in Moab, Utah for 40 days with water, with food, and knowing exactly where I am. Not, not 40 years in, in ancient Moab or whatever, not knowing where I was and having nothing to eat and drink. Well, it was, it was there for them to be had. They just needed to obviously rely on God. Well, Jesus, 40 is also important uh, for, for Moses, spending 40 uh, days on the mountain, but also in Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness without food early on in his ministry, just after his baptism. Well, that's one book in the bookend of the story. At the other end, you have Jesus spending 40 days feeding his followers with insight into the kingdom. Spiritual food that was not a matter of the material world, not a matter of cooking things up in the kitchen, but a matter of spiritual war waged and won against the forces of darkness and the forces of sin. But as we'll see, the disciples didn't fully understand. They didn't completely comprehend the nature and the significance of this kingdom to which Jesus was speaking. And a clear indication of this misunderstanding comes in a story of two people, Cleopas and another person that's unnamed in Luke 24, the story on the, about the road to Emmaus. Well, before we get there in Luke 24, 24 begins just after Joseph of Arimathea, having asked for the body of Jesus, took it down and laid it in what the word calls a rock-hewn tomb. Luke says of Joseph that he was, was like, he was a godly man and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Luke says in, in the early part of uh, 24 that, the, uh, that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women saw where Joseph had laid Jesus' body. And on the first day of the week, at the very beginning of chapter 24, these women brought spices to the tomb that were usually applied to corpses. They, they were looking for the corpse of Jesus. Well, to their amazement, Jesus wasn't there, right? He had risen from the dead, and he was where to be found. They didn't know. And I want you to hear what this word says. Suddenly, a theme in Luke, suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes appeared and asked, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here He's risen. You see, this is where we pick up in verse 13 when we find these two individuals who have heard about the empty tomb and they're completely confused. In verse 13 of 24, it shifts to the story of the men on the road to Emmaus. In 13 it says, Now on the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? Now I want us to pause here and, and note two things. Imagine Jesus saying that to you. I mean, not, not that you see Jesus, but imagine Jesus asking you, well, what are you discussing there at the, the Starbucks table? Or, or what's going on in your life? I, I can imagine Jesus asking us these things and, and asking us to verbalize them. He knows what's going on, but he wants us to communi communicate with him. But also I want you to notice more importantly here that the passage does not simply say that the people did not recognize Jesus. It says what? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That kept from connotes passivity. It's, it's a passive nature. You see, these people were not necessarily blinded by sin. That is, it wasn't as if they could have done anything to this point to perceive that this was Jesus standing before them or to see who Jesus really was. It wasn't that, but their eyes were kept from seeing him, perceiving who this Jesus was. Well, let's continue on in verse 18. Verse 18 says, The one of them whose name was Cleopas, apparently Luke thought that people would know who this was, 
answered him, saying, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there these days? I mean, imagine if you're Cleopas and this other person. Like, who is this guy? I mean, have you not heard? It's like some big national event occurring, and it's all over the news, and you go to work, and you, and you ask your coworker, and you're like, hey, did you hear about this? And they're like, what? Are, are you living under a rock, they're asking? How, how do you not know about these things? And what did Jesus say? He said, what things? I can imagine you and I saying, hey, Jesus, uh, haven't you heard about what I'm going through? Haven't you heard about all this stuff going on in my life? And he's like, well, what things? Tell me about them. And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was, and this is important, the one that would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, notice they said a vision of angels. In fact, they saw real angels. Some of these were, uh, who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman said, but they did not see him. How does Jesus respond here? He says this in verse 25. He says, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. What is it, what, what, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things about himself and all the scriptures. You see, I don't know exactly what Jesus said here. I'm not sure uh, which passages he cited, but it, it was a seven-mile journey. So it was like, hey, we've got a long time to talk here. Uh, I imagine that he cited the passages from Genesis that we referred to earlier. I, I can imagine Jesus citing the passage from Hosea 6, 1 and 2, which says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For it is he who has torn, and he will heal us. He has struck down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on what? On the third day. He will raise us up that he may live before, we may live before him. I can imagine he was reciting from the book of Psalms. I can imagine him citing passages from the book of Isaiah that refer to a man that was, as we know, despised, rejected by others. I promise you there are people in this room that feel rejected. And there are people out there that feel rejected. Well, if they feel rejected, they have somebody to identify with. Uh, he says, a man of suffering acquainted with infirmities. I'm sure there's many of us in here that could say the same thing. A man who bore our infirmities and carried our diseases, the one and only one that could. A man who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And upon this man, this God, this God-man, was the punishment that made us whole. And by his bruises, we were healed. Remember the bruises that we talked about earlier in the book of Genesis. That's what we're referring to here. Well, I can imagine Jesus saying these things, quoting these scriptures, and trying to explain it to these men. But after describing these things to Cleopas and this other unnamed person, Luke says in verse 28 the following. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on. This is Jesus acted like he was going to walk on. But they urged him saying, stay with us because it is almost evening. And day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. I mean, imagine the scenario. Still at this point, these people, Cleopas and the other, didn't really, they didn't see Jesus for who he was. They were talking with a human, conversing with him, but it wasn't until after breaking the bread that they saw who he was. So Jesus broke the bread, their own bread, and gave it to them. And it says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And suddenly he vanished from their sight. There's a lot to be said there as well. 
But I want us to think about the, the import of this particular passage here. You see, these men had walked along with Jesus. He had explained things in, uh, in, in uh, an infinitely wise way. He had explained things in a way that they could understand, I'm imagining. And yet they still didn't perceive him. They saw the person, but they didn't perceive him. I can imagine us reading the word and even believing in this Christ and yet missing something. They didn't perceive this Jesus. And it was only when, what? When they invited him in and that they broke bread with him. You see, it's this bread that's his anyway. But he's, he's asking for this bread. He's asking for you and I to break bread with him. He's asking for you and I to commune with him. He's asking for you and I to give him praise, to give him adoration, even when we don't feel like it. I'm sure some of you are very tired in this room. I'm, I, I am myself very, very worn out. I'm not asking you to sympathize with me. Maybe some of you can empathize with me. But, but it's in these times and in just the day-to-day tasks where where he's asking us to, to break bread. Let me commune with you. Let me speak with you. And then their eyes were open. You see, the passage moves on to where Jesus moves from there to the disciples in the same book, but also in Acts 1. And he explains to them about the prophets and about Moses and Psalms. And in Acts 1, it says that he spoke of the kingdom of God and of the promise of the Spirit. And when he's speaking with the disciples, here early on these 40 days, the disciples are still confused. And in fact, the, the word refers to them as disbelieving. Like, who is this guy? I mean, you look like Jesus, uh, you sound like Jesus, but, but I'm not really sure who you are. They, they missed it and he was right in front of them. Another message, right? That's not the message today. Sometimes we can miss this Jesus and he's right in front of us. But you see, he was trying to explain to him, to them, the kingdom of God and its significance. You see, the kingdom of God is a common theme in the Old Testament and the New Testament. As one commentator writes, the kingdom of God largely refers to God's sovereign rule in human life and the affairs of history. So if we are to understand this kingdom, we need to understand the king. And in order to understand the king, we need to understand his role in history. See, Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah generated much fever and much fervor known as what we call messianic expectation. They were expecting a Messiah. And we often come in here in church and, and just say, yeah, people were expecting the Messiah and then there he was and, and then we go on about our business. But there was serious disagreement about who this Messiah would be and what he would be here to do. You see, Many of these Jews in the first century, even back some centuries before that, were, were good-hearted, some of them anyway, and they were expecting a, a fabricated Jesus, one that kind of suited their needs. You have different groups. So, for, for example, we have some major players here you've heard about. We have the Pharisees, the strict observers of Mosaic law. Their radical obedience to the law and their legalism set them apart or distinguished them from Rome. See, they expected the Messiah to come and bring about a nonviolent revolution where Jesus would overthrow Rome, like snap his finger, Rome's gone, and establish an earthly kingdom then and there. Well, then there are the Essenes, and these Essenes were like the Pharisees. They were a legalistic group that expected the Messiah to overthrow the Romans. They withdrew from society to study Hebrew scripture full time. My friend, that's not our job. Our, friend, our job is not to withdraw and just study the word. Our job is to engage. Our job is to do things like the Fall Fun Festival, but not even just that, but to commune with those in our workplace. Well, then there are the Sadducees. These were considered to be the sellouts. They were the compromisers. They compromised with the Romans who allowed them to devise a religious court known as the Sanhedrin. You see, they mixed Jewish and Roman cultures. They wanted to get by. They saw the political tide and where it was going, and they just wanted to be left alone. Just let us do our thing, and let us be, do like Jewish stuff, but then we'll also mix in your other stuff, and maybe you'll be happy, and we'll be happy, and we'll all be happy. You see, they, they were considered to be sellouts. You see, there's another group called the Zealots, and these were, this was a group that came into prominence some 100 to 200 years before the uh, Christ on earth. It says, Jews, these were Jews that expected the Messiah to lead a violent overthrow 
of the Romans. Jesus is going to come and lead an army, and we're going to get those Romans, and they're going to be gone. And then, finally, there was the average Jew who studied and kept the law and simply waited for the Messiah. Maybe he didn't completely understand who this Messiah would be, but simply waited. You see, there are all sorts of misunderstandings about the kingdom of God here. But the kingdom of God goes hand in hand with the work of the spirit of this Jesus. You see, the Pharisees in particular thought that Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom then and there. When the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom was coming, Jesus says, the kingdom is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, there it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. It's, the king is standing right in front of your face. I think some of us need to understand that today. But some scripture or some versions say the kingdom of God is within you. Now, I don't think he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees, but he's saying those of you who are part of the kingdom of God, those of you who are my followers, the kingdom is not just there outside, it's here inside. You see, children of God are not merely members of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God lives in the children of God as they abide in Jesus. You see, these two descriptions go hand in hand. You can't be a member of the kingdom of God unless Jesus resides in you. And Jesus doesn't reside in you unless you are a member of the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is living within the children of God. And it's neither passive nor ineffectual. It's active and life-changing powerful. This kingdom of God, as, as some of my profs at, at SNU would say, is already but not yet. It's been established. It's been established out there. It's been established in our hearts if we're followers of Christ. It's already, but it's not yet. The word says that we're saved and we're what? We're being saved. We're sanctified and we're being sanctified. We're filled with the Spirit and we're being filled. It's not just a, we think of it as a step process. Saved, then I'm baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit and woo, there it is, right? We're saved, being saved. The kingdom is continually flowing in our hearts when we are seeking this Jesus. But even after 40 days, the disciples are still asking Jesus when he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel. I mean, this is hard for us to believe in 2018. Like, how did they not see this? But we have to empathize with them. I probably would have been the same way. You see, they're wondering when he's going to establish this kingdom. When, when can we expect this to happen? It's like us saying, well, when, when Jesus are you going to do in our lives, in our congregation, and in our marriages, what we've been waiting for you to do, what we know you can do, and what you want to do. Well, what does Jesus say? He doesn't even really answer them, but he says, it's up to the Father. No, uh, now go and do what? Wait until the Spirit has come upon you. That is, until you've been clothed with power. And then they would only understand what this Jesus was like. You see, many of us right now, and I want you to, to listen to me right here. Many of us right now are, are, in a sense, we know who Jesus is. We know, we know about his Messiahship, and, and we look at these people and say, ha, how did you not understand it? And yet, you and I are still on, let's say, the, the left side of the until, right? So, so there's the sentence here, and then there's one side of the sentence, and then until, and then there's the other side of the sentence. And we're on the left side of the until where, where we need Christ to do something, and we're waiting for, for him, and he's saying, wait until, and then when you've been clothed in power, then you will understand. You see, the disciples would eventually, in Acts 2, come to understand what this Jesus, who this Jesus was in his kingdom. They would understand what Paul writes when he writes, the kingdom is not a matter of word, but of power. You see, who is this Jesus? I want, I'm, there's many things that I could say here, and I could have gone through the four roles and these kinds of things, but I want to highlight two things for you, and I think these are really important. He's, Jesus is the friend of sinners and outcasts. In fact, that's, that's all of us, my friends. He's the sinners, he, he's, he's the friend of sinners and outcasts, and to this point, we see this when he's meeting with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John 4, where, where this woman says, what? 
He's seeking water, and she says to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And John says parenthetically, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Now, imagine, there, there are people out there today that feel hopeless. There, there may be people in here that feel hopeless. But there are people out there that feel hopeless, and they're downcast, and, and they may not look like me, and they may not look like you. They may even be part of a different political party. They may even have certain identifications. But, but these people are waiting for someone. And, and, and many of these people might think, well, well wait, why are you talking to me? Aren't you a Christian and don't you believe this, that, and the other thing? Why would you talk to a person like me who you call a sinner? Well, that's exactly the point. That's why I am talking to you. Is it because you do need this Jesus? And, and here we see this woman who is, is outcast. And, and in fact, we find out that she's what? She's committing adultery. What did Jesus say here? Did Jesus say, how dare you? In fact, she didn't even tell Jesus this. Jesus just knew it, and he made it known. Jesus didn't shake his finger at this woman and say, you're disgusting. Go on out of here and stop sinning, right? Well, of course he wanted her not to sin, but Jesus stayed and talked to her. In fact, this woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. There's a lot to the story, but she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And he says, I am he. You see, the disciples were astounded afterwards that Jesus would talk to, here's another demonstrative, that woman. How could you talk to that woman? How could you communicate with that woman? She's a sinner. She's a Samaritan. She's a half-breed. We don't talk to people like that. Of course, Jesus doesn't respond in any way, but I can imagine what he's saying. He's saying that you, my friends, you are her, and she is you. Those people out there that are, that are dying and lost, and the people in this very room that may be sitting right next to you that are hurting and can't tell anyone, this Jesus is for them. I promise you there are people in this room in churches across America who, who feel like they can't talk to anyone in churches because they're afraid that they'll get fingers pointed in their faces. When this Jesus would never do that, he would never point in this woman's face. And I'm not blaming anyone in this room, but I'm saying we have to be careful, my friends, because Jesus is the friend of sinners and outcasts. He's a friend of you and me. You see, Jesus is the one who, who concerned himself more with substance than with ceremony and with, and with formula. To this point, he's the one who told the Pharisees in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for humankind and not the humankind for the Sabbath. After the Pharisees complained that the disciples were plucking heads of grain. You see, the, the Sabbath is important. There's wisdom in taking the Sabbath. But the idea is it was created for you and I. The idea is that, well, people might do things a little differently. They might, they might actually have church on a Tuesday night Woo, right? Uh, actually, we, I, we went to a church where we had church on Sundays, but there was a Tuesday night service. And they may do things a little differently. And, and they may look, actually look a little different than you and I. And, and, and yet, Jesus isn't concerned about that. He's concerned about this. He's concerned about the heart. You see, these same Pharisees conspired to destroy Jesus a few verses later in Mark 3. When Jesus asked them, is it, law, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save or to kill? I mean, he, uh, Jesus had, was really good at, 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 uh, at trapping the, the, the Pharisees. What were they going to say to this? Oh, it's better to kill on the Sabbath? Well, he said this or asked this question just before he healed a man with a withering hand. And as he did this on the Sabbath, what did the Pharisees do? They conspired to kill him. You see, my friends... This Jesus came, and he came in a very particular way to fulfill a very particular purpose, and he's not about, about form and, 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 and facade. He's about this. He's about the real thing, the real deal, the real McCoy. He's about substance. You see, we often will, and, and people do this in, in good faith, and, and, and they, they do so meaning very well, but they'll run all over the country trying to find a healer. They'll run a prayer healer. They'll go all over the country and pray, okay, what prayer do I need to pray here? What, what do I need to do here? Like, tell me exactly what I need to do. And then, and then you say it, and God's like, that's amazing. You said the prayer that I wanted you to pray. You follow the formula. 
There you go. Suddenly I'll show up. But my friends, it, it doesn't act like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You see, God does not work that way. God may work through individual people. God may work through politicians. But you and I cannot expect a politician or a president to make right what's wrong. You see, the kingdom of God is not a, a kingdom of the, the material world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And I can't expect so-and-so to make things right. It's Jesus who makes things right. It's this Jesus that wants to visit and fellowship with you and with me. The other Jesuses are human fabrications. They're idols because they're not the real thing. You see, it's this Jesus who, who wouldn't excuse locker room talk. It's this Jesus who wouldn't say, well, boys will be boys. It's this Jesus who wouldn't sneer at a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. It's this Jesus who would say, I want to save you. I want to be your savior. I want you to be part of this kingdom. It's this Jesus who wouldn't overlook the corruption and hypocrisy and name-calling in Washington just because the politicians in question want to overturn Roe v. Wade, lower your taxes, and hand-wave at God by saying things like, God bless America. Now, I'm not saying if you say God bless America, you're just hand-waving at God, but I know there are politicians all across this land who will do the... Roe v. Wade is, a, is an evil... But at the same time, even if they agree with us on all these very things and say and spew the most despicable and disgusting things, it doesn't pass. And just because they, they overturn these things or appoint the right judges, it doesn't mean things will be set aright because that victory was paid for on the cross by Jesus and not by politicians and not by people like you and I. It's this Jesus. You see, it's this Jesus who chose to obey the Father and die for the stink of humanity. It's this Jesus who made the lame walk and the blind see. It's this Jesus that filled the servants in the upper room. It's this Jesus who was about to call the true believers home. You see, the same Jesus who departed wants to dine with you and with me. He wants to not only save you, but to deliver you from anxiety and, de and depression. There are people in this room today that are, that are suffering from anxiety and depression and you would never know it because they can't tell a soul and even if they did, you wouldn't understand. You see, Jesus, this Jesus wants to, to, to deliver you. He wants to deliver you from that pornography addiction. Wait, what? I didn't know that was a thing in church. He wants to deliver you from these things and he can and he will. And he wants to heal your marriage and your home. You see, this Jesus is the real person. He wants to move not through politics, the politics of foul-talking politicians, but through the power of the baptism of love, through the hearts and the renewed minds of ordinary people like you and like me. You see, it's this Jesus that we need. You see, if you want to know who this Jesus is, if you want to not only see him but perceive the real Jesus, I'll tell you what to do. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here. But look at the lives changed by his work. Look at me, for example. I, I'm a man that was saved at the age of five, who through many trials, relatively small and, and mundane and downright existential, stands here before you preaching the word of this Jesus, the Jesus that he's loved since he was a little boy. I loved this Jesus since I was three and four, and I, I didn't really understand, but I knew he was something different. I knew this Jesus. You see, it, it's, it's about this. It, it's, it's this Jesus who saved my marriage when it was in utter tatters. It's this Jesus who did. It's this Jesus who showed up one day when, when, I, when it all seemed lost in my marriage. And, and I just, I, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, and I could do nothing but throw myself on the bed in War Acres, Oklahoma, and just simply cry, help, help me. That's all I could say. And I stand here before you this morning telling you that my marriage is as strong as it's ever been, and it will be stronger in the future. You see, it's this Jesus whose spirit, spirit comforted my wife and I through the span of three miscarriages. One requiring surgical removal of the fetus with no heartbeat. It's this Jesus who wiped the tears from my wife's eyes when I didn't know what to say. There's nothing I could say to, to comfort her. And I had to, to try to, to make 
ends meet for myself. I couldn't do anything. But it was this Jesus that showed up. Take a look at yourselves, my friends. This very moment, take a look at yourselves. It's this Jesus who brought you here today. I have no idea what you're going through. I don't know, but I can, I can guess that some of you are going through some things. And, and, and all I can say here to you is this, that if you have this Jesus, the one that the angels pointed to, if you have this Jesus, you have it all. You have everything that you need. You see, if you want to know, not only see this Jesus, but perceive the real Jesus, invite him to break bread with you as did the men on the road to Emmaus. Look at the lives that he's changed. Look at your life and how he's kept you here by his grace. But then feed him genuine praise. Feed him genuine tears and feed him your service and feed him your life. You see, many of us this morning need an encounter with this Jesus. Not a human-made image of Jesus, but the real person. You're waiting for that until moment. You, you've been waiting expectantly. You, you've been going through issues and trials and, and you're waiting for the until. Like, when is this until? And you might say, Josh, you know, don't we all need encounters with this Jesus? And to that I say, obviously, yes, that's the case. But this morning I'm speaking specifically to the hurting. I'm speaking to the tired. I'm speaking to the depressed and the anxious. I'm speaking to the addicted. I was speaking to the struggling. This Jesus is here for you. This Jesus can deliver you and this Jesus can sustain you when the enemy tries to ensnare you again into these traps that he always gets you into. You see, this is the Jesus that we need to be hungry for and thirsty for, for him, for more of this Jesus. I could go on and on, but if this describes you this morning, I would recommend you turn your hearts to the real Jesus. Turn him, feed him your heartfelt, genuine praise and wait on him. You see, waiting is not just about going in our room and sitting down. Waiting is serving. Waiting is loving. Waiting is doing. But at the same time, it's saying, Lord, if you don't do anything, then nothing's going to happen here. You see, waiting is not, is not seeing how like, hard we could pray or, or what formulas we can follow. It's not about any of that. It's about feeding this Jesus the praise, the genuine love that he deserves. And my friends, going back to the last message I pre preached, this love can only come from this Jesus himself. You can only know and love this Jesus if, if he starts to work in your hearts. If your heart is failing and you know that it's failing this morning, ask this Jesus and he will renew your heart by his spirit. If your mind is on everything else but Jesus, then ask him. And the word says he will renew your minds. And wait. Wait. The waiting is the good stuff, my friends. Yeah, there's stuff on the other side of the until, but it's, it's before that that this Jesus can be Jesus to you and can be Jesus to me. I'm waiting for a move of God in this sanctuary, a move of God in this city. But we could just pray and pray and, and really pray really hard and, and then give up in the end. Or we can continue to seek. We can continue to give and love. And by giving and loving to the outcasts, we are giving loving to the one who died for them. You see, we can wait and trust in the promise of the kingdom, a kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of freedom the kingdom of peace. Ask him and he will not put you to shame. He, he will not, it will not be like that trust fall game where, where you fall back and he just said, ah, I'm just kidding. It's not about that. This Jesus says, you feed me your praise because I gave this life to you anyway. I died for you and I will show up. It may not be how you expected, but I will show up. You see, you may not be facing addiction, depression and the like this morning. But if that's true, Jesus wants to continue you to continue exploring, to seek an encounter of his presence that maybe you may feed others with the grace of Jesus' message of his just and his forgiving kingdom. And I promise that if you explore, you will be amazed. You see, you may be waiting for that until in expectation. Wait 
seek love. And this same Jesus will suddenly appear and do things that you would never expect and in ways you would never expect him to. And that's what I'm expecting in this service. That's what I'm expecting in, in, in this congregation. That's what I'm expecting in my life and in your life. And that's what I'm expecting in this city. Feed this Jesus. There's only one real Jesus. Feed him. Feed him with your praise.